Now, this is something that is in most, if not all, of your Bibles. Um, So once you get to to James chapter 8, turn your attention to it right before it. And perhaps you notice some strange brackets, a heading, some notes about this paragraph that begins in chapter 7, verse 53, and goes all the way down to chapter 8, verse 11. What do you see? What does it say? Thank you, Mr. Thacker. It's a good high school teacher voice. Thank you very much. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Well, what does that mean? What it means is that this paragraph was probably not written by John, who wrote the Gospel of John. Archaeological studies, have shown, we have found earlier and earlier copies of the Gospel of John, and the earliest copies we have do not have that story in there, which means that it was added later, but not much later. As early as the second or third century, this story starts showing up in copies of the Gospel of John, interestingly, at different parts of the Gospel of John. So it's not consistently inserted at the same place. This is very uncommon in the Bible. Our manuscript traditions are very good. Uh, You can spot, we have so many copies of the Bible spreading out over a long period of time and in different regions so that you can see if something got copied and then copied and copied and copied, you can see what the error was. And ordinarily, it's something like a spelling error. Somebody skips a line. It's very odd for a whole chunk to get added to it. The only other place where we really see this in the New Testament is the end of Mark's gospel. So this is odd. This is notable. And a lot of times preachers just kind of skip over it. Um, I think you guys can handle this conversation. What do we do with this paragraph? Did this story of Jesus with the adulterous woman, uh, did this happen? Should it be placed in John's gospel? Should it be in the Bible at all? I personally, as I've studied the issue, I believe it's plausible that this story did happen. The things that happen in the story sound to me like the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. And if you were to really push me about where do I think this came from, I think it's probable that this is a story that John knew about Jesus. He was one of Jesus' disciples. And he didn't include it in his gospel, but maybe one day in a sermon at his church or maybe in some other setting, he told this story about Jesus. And it was retained in the community of that church for a century. And finally, they said, we love this story about Jesus. Let's stick it in John's gospel. And so it just got kind of shoved in there between the leaves of a codex or written in the margin of a scroll somewhere. So that's my best guess as to where this thing came from. But even if this story didn't happen... Even if this story was made up in the second century, the themes that are in it resonate with other texts in the New Testament. So all that is to say is, I don't know if this paragraph is indeed the Word of God, or if it is in fact an authentic event from the life of Jesus. But today, I'm going to preach it like it is, because the themes herein reflect biblical truths that I think will be helpful and meaningful to each of us. Now, For some of you, you've never heard any of this talk before, and this is terrifying to you. If you have questions about manuscript tradition, uh, the legitimacy of the scriptures that we have, I'd be happy to tell you way more about that than you want to know. Uh, 
one thing I love about Christianity is they just put it on the page. We're not hiding anything here because we know that the scriptures we've been given are from God, that they've been preserved through the centuries. And so if we got this paragraph potentially on the chopping block, we don't lose sleep over that because the traditions are so solid. So you can ask me more questions about that afterwards if you're curious. So let me read for us John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one. Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Last March, see if my mouse is going to work today. Yay, it does. Last March, uh, Trail Life Troop 1812, which is a local Christian scouting organization that many of our families here are part of, Trail Life Troop 1812 had its spring camp out. And one of the campout activities for the older boys, as in like ages nine and up, was a lesson about safely handling knives. And we got some thumbs up from some of the boys. Y'all are going to regret having just raised your hand because you haven't heard the rest of the illustration yet. You've really just narrowed things down a little bit. Not really. And so, as you can imagine, I was hovering over some of the more energetic and reckless trailmen uh, for fear of what they might do with their knives. But wouldn't you know it, the one boy who ended up cutting himself was the one who probably had the most knife experience in the room. And he was one of the ones that I would count as one of the most responsible boys in the troop. This is the problem with knives. A knife doesn't respect your experience. It doesn't respect your wisdom. It doesn't respect your age. No, a knife has no problem with cutting anybody. Problem's not with the knife so much as with the user. And if you don't handle a knife properly, you endanger not only yourself, but also the people around you. Where am I going with this? The law of God is a razor-sharp blade. God gave it to us to use, but if we don't use it carefully, we can end up hurting ourselves and other people. We can even bring insult and injury to the name of God. The law of God is a razor-sharp blade, so we have to be careful with how we use it. But what is the law? So the law was written by the finger of God and given to us for a good and constructive use. So in today's text, the scribes and the Pharisees bring an adulterous woman to Jesus to see how he would respond to her sin. They're trying to make him contradict the law of God so that they can find grounds on which to invalidate his message. And you can see 
how insincere they are already by the fact they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery and only her. (laughs) Clearly, these guys are not really that concerned about justice or truth or anything like that. But let's look at verses 4 through 6. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, uh, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So here they are using the law of God. They're wielding it like a knife for their purpose of ultimately trying to trap Jesus. Well, that's clearly not what the law was made for. They're using it improperly, and they're going to get themselves or someone else hurt. Now, conveniently, Jesus is present. And who is Jesus? You'll notice that Jesus doesn't even respond to them. What does he do? He squats down, and he writes in the dust with his finger. What's up with that? Every answer you get is conjecture. There's a lot of ways you can explain it. The explanation that I like the best is this one. In Exodus chapter 31, when God gives the two tablets of the law to Moses, how does Moses describe it? It says, And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the scribes and Pharisees are swinging around this knife like they know what they're doing. Meanwhile, the very finger that wrote the law in stone is present. The one who crafted that knife, the one who imbued that knife with purpose, he is there. And what is he doing but doodling with his finger in the dust? These guys, the scribes and Pharisees, are amateurs. They don't know who they're talking to. They don't know what this finger has done and what this finger will do. So how does Jesus respond to them? Does he join the knife fight? He sure does. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? So Jesus, like a skilled swordsman, disarms his opponents and then sticks them with their own knife. He turns the law back on them. Oh, you want to stone this woman to death because she has sin? Okay. Which one of you has fully kept the law? Which one of you doesn't deserve to die? And the answer is none of them. Jesus, like a master surgeon, cut all these accusers and laid them bare so that the woman had no accusers left. Now, what do we learn from all this swordplay? What is the law and how should it be used? Let's start with what it is. The law can refer to a few different things depending on the context. So the law can mean the commandments of God to Israel Most often it means the second one. The law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the Pentateuch. Or more broadly, occasionally people will talk about the law as any rules that God has given his people in the Old or New Testament. Again, most of the time when you hear about the law in the Bible, it's talking about that second category, the first five books of the Bible. But all of these are appropriate in certain contexts. What's the point 
of all the commands in the Bible? What's the point of the commands in the Old Testament, these stories? Well, first of all, this, by itself, the law is a knife that condemns and kills us. That's the first thing that the law does is it condemns us. When you read the law of God, when you read God's commands, every time you're going to find a way that you have failed to be like God. You will find ways that you have failed to live as you ought. The law cuts us and exposes our guilt. But it does more than that. It doesn't just condemn us. It doesn't just show us our shame and our guilt. It even kills us. Well, how does the law kill us? Well, let's think about the effect that rules have on people. When you tell a kid to not do something, what do they immediately want to do, parent? <laughs> they want to do the opposite of that. They want to break that rule. I won't speak to the ladies in the room, but gentlemen, when you get on the interstate and you see that speed limit, what do you want to do? You know, just get like, you know, 5, 10, 15 over. Right? We're not going to go crazy. We're not going to go 20 over the speed. When a law is given, it provokes something in us where we want to get as close as we can to breaking that law or just over it. It's strange how the law arouses our rebellious nature. But Paul points that out in Romans chapter 7 when he said this, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Remember, the payment, the, the consequence of our sin is death. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So God's laws do more than expose our past and present failures. They can even cause us to be tempted in the future. Let me give you another example from my own life. Some years ago, I was doing my own taxes, and I saw a form on, or a little field on the tax sheet that said sales tax. I thought, why in the world, when I'm doing my income tax, would there be a form here about sales tax? So I Googled it, and you know what I learned? I learned that I was responsible to pay sales tax on any online purchases I had made when a sales tax had not been charged. Now, this has been fixed since then, but at that time, Amazon and eBay did not charge sales tax. So legally, I was liable to pay sales tax on all those online purchases I'd made that year. This was the law. When I learned that law, that law awoke sin in me. My flesh did not want to go back and look up every online purchase I had made that year. My flesh did not want to file more paperwork to pay this sales tax. My flesh, for the record, doesn't really like paying any taxes. So the law provoked and aroused my flesh. The law gave me an opportunity I didn't know I had to sin. And in so doing... The law endangered me. If I'd given in to that urge, the result would have been bad. Left unto itself, this is what the law does. The law is like a razor-sharp blade. We read it, 
and the law shows us our sin. It cuts past our pleasant exterior and it shows our covetous, prideful, violent nature within. And sometimes it even awakens our sinfulness. (laughs) That sounds like a terrible gift from God, right? Well, that was not God's ultimate purpose for the law in our lives. No, that's just a part of what it does. You see, he wrote the law with a constructive purpose. The constructive use of the law occurs when, after its exposing work, it drives us to the gospel of Christ, where we find God's invitation to repent. So when I read the law, when I read the rules of God in the Old or New Testament, I can easily find myself overwhelmed because I am not today as I ought to be. And when I find the things that I should do, I find those things difficult. Now, that can lead us to sorrow, that can lead us to grief, that can lead us to guilt, or it can lead us to Christ. And in the gospel of Jesus, we find the message of repentance. When I said earlier that the themes we see in this text resonate with other texts in the Bible, the one that comes to the forefront of my mind is Romans chapter 2. So I'm going to read this paragraph from Romans 2, and I want you to be thinking of this interaction between Jesus and the adulterous woman and the scribes and Pharisees as we read it and see how these two passages are so parallel. Paul said this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Man, that sounds just like this narrative in John chapter 8. The scribes and Pharisees aim to condemn Jesus and this woman with the law. They are judging them from a position of authority, of moral authority, right? But as they wield the law, it condemns them too. They try to expose her sin and Jesus' sin, but instead they walk away bleeding. They walk away cut by their own weapon. Look at verses 7 through 9 again in our text. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So the same law of God that condemned this woman for her sin also condemned them. The knife cuts both ways. But these men walk away from the law with their heads hung low. They walk away feeling guilty. They walk away with their shame. And that is not the full constructive use of the law. Also, The law doesn't send us away saying, hey, do better. That's also not the proper use of the law. Romans 2.4 shows us the proper use of the law when Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing what? That God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. I've never met a person who repented because they felt bad 
No, it's God's kindness offered, his open arms to us that cause us to flee from our sin and its condemnation and its enslavement to the God who forgives freely. What is repentance, though? A lot of time we think of repentance as beating ourselves up or feeling really bad or trying to change our life. All of that misses the point. No, repentance is the act of running from our sins and their illicit satisfaction to the joy and peace found in the arms of our Father because of the work of Christ. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, repentance is the prodigal son eating pig slop and then realizing This is terrible. (laughs) This is not the life that I want. This is disgusting and depressing and unsatisfying. And what does he remember in that moment of conviction when his own sin is laid bare? He remembers his father's house where everything is provided for. And what does that sucker do? He runs home. That's repentance. You need the law to prepare you for repentance because repentance will never happen if you don't see your sin. And let me inform you, if you're not aware already, your sin is great, as is mine. I see my sin every day, throughout the day. The law cuts me. It exposes me. But what is it that calls us to repent when we see our guilt, when we see our shame? It's the kindness of God found in the gospel. The problem caused by the law is solved by the gospel because in the gospel we are told good news about our Father's love offered through Jesus. His arms are open to all those who trust in the completed work of Christ. We have failed to be as we ought to be. And on our own we will never be what we ought to be. The law tells us that. But Jesus... He has not failed, and he will never fail. And on the cross, he traded everything he had in his humanity to us for all of our fallenness. Through faith in Jesus, his death becomes our death for sins. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and his relationship with the Father becomes our relationship with the Father. So that if you trust in Christ, there is nothing left for you to do to be restored to the Father. He delights in you. You are completely forgiven, completely restored, and he invites you to know him and to be loved by him. Not by works of the law, but through trusting Christ. So let's go back to our text. With the scribes and Pharisees, the law condemns them and kills them. Nothing more. They walk away with their guilt. But what about this woman? Will she repent? Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The conclusion of this story is mind-blowing to me. This is one of the reasons I think it's an authentic example from the life of Jesus. Because what does Jesus do. He doesn't say you're forgiven. He doesn't say, ah, it doesn't matter that you committed adultery. He gives her more law. He says, go, I don't condemn you, but from now on, stop sinning. (laughs) Stop sinning. (laughs) That's like the law above all laws. This statement from Jesus feels heavier 
than the one that the scribes and Pharisees were laying on her. Now, we don't know how this woman responded to Jesus. The story just stops. I think there's a reason for that. The real question is not how she responded. The question is how you will respond. God gave us the law for a good and constructive purpose, but it is wielded so easily in a way that leaves us and others only cut up, dead, and dying. Sometimes we wield it against each other in that way. The scribes and Pharisees didn't use the law well, nor did they experience its ultimate purpose, and we don't know about this woman. But what about you? How are you handling the law, well or poorly? Do you utilize it at all? The law is a razor-sharp blade, and we need to be careful how we use it. First, we need to carefully use the law for our own introspection, confession, and repentance. You might think the first five books of the Bible have no relevance whatsoever for a 21st century Christian, especially for a Gentile Christian. I'm arguing the opposite. In fact, I would encourage you to read the law regularly, if not daily. Why? Well, first, it's good for introspection. We all have lots of sin, and you're surely aware of some of them, but you have other sins of which you are not aware. And reading the law does a cutting work, and it shows us sins we were not even aware of. So the law helps us to see our hidden sins so that we can can confess them and repent. So let's imagine that you were to integrate a daily reading of the law into your daily Bible reading, whatever your current practice is. So let's say you get up, whenever you do your Bible reading, I I try to do it in the morning before the kids are up, but it's not always successful. (laughs) I try try to read a psalm first. I I pray it to God to begin my time with worship. But then let's imagine after you do that, you immediately go to the law. You got your bookmark there in Leviticus, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, and you open it up to see what the next paragraph says for a time of introspection and confession. And you you turn to this from Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sins of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. So here you are sitting at your dining room table or at your desk and you read this paragraph and then you take that text like a mirror and look at yourself and you ask the question, have I been hateful to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How have I acted toward my neighbors and my coworkers in thought, word, and deed? Do I have grudges that I need to let go of? Have I been harboring a vengeful spirit? Have I loved others as I love myself? And as you spend a few minutes reflecting on that, ask the Holy Spirit to show you your sin. And then as you see your sin, as you remember conversations and interactions and thoughts that you've had, and you feel the exposing work of the law, what do you do then? Confess to the Lord. Repent, remember, and enjoy God's forgiveness given to you in the cross. Revel in his love for you because of the work of Christ. You're forgiven. You're righteous. You're included. And more than that, you are empowered to sin no more. Through the work of the Spirit, you are empowered to live according to this law. The law does not give life. It kills. But paired with the gospel, 
It becomes a constructive tool that prepares our hearts for confession and repentance. And repentance doesn't leave us with grief and sorrow. No, it leaves us with joy and freedom in the work of Christ. So the law is a razor-sharp blade. We need to be careful how we use it. And this is one way we should use it. We need to carefully use the law for our own introspection, confession, and repentance. But that said, we need to be even more careful with how we use the law in relation to others. This story is a cautionary tale about a poor use of the law. These scribes and Pharisees risk this woman's spiritual well-being by involving her in this knife fight. And here's what it shows me. That the law is often wielded by people in a way that cuts and gouges others rather than doing healing surgery. How many times have you heard the complaint that the church is full of hypocrites? That Christians are judgmental? This is one of the reasons people say that. Christians regularly take God's laws and mishandle them and we end up cutting other people with them. We approach them like the scribes and Pharisees as though we have no sin and we accuse them from a position and authority that we do not have. The law is meant to expose sin and it is a tool that we are to use in relation to each other. But the scripture is clear that we should not be handling the law in this way if we have not first gone under its knife. We must have been cut first. We must have been repenting. We must have gone under the knife first. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said this, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I never understood this text until a few years ago when Megan and I were walking into Home Depot one day. Something flew in my eye. Some kind of huge, like, I don't know, it was a stick or something. I couldn't get it out of my eye, but it got in there, and it was so abrasive and so obtrusive, I couldn't see. And I was, all I could do was, like, do this, and just, like, grossness coming out of my eye because this thing was just tearing up my eye. And as I'm blinking in the parking lot like this, I told Megan, I said, oh, I understand what Jesus meant now. (laughs) She goes, what? (laughs) I said, if I tried to get something out of your eye right now, I would gouge your eye out. And that's exactly the point. Before we ever talk to another person about their sin, we better make darn sure that we have gone under the knife. Some commentators suggest that the scribes and Pharisees walked away not just because they knew they had sin, but because they knew they had sexual sin. They were condemning an adulteress when in their hearts they were participating in and justifying the same kinds of things. So check yourself. Before you talk to someone else about their sin, have you dealt with your sin? Have you done the work? of reading the law, confessing your sins, repenting, and then living in obedience and faithfulness to God. Because here is the reality. We do have a responsibility to handle the law this way in covenantal relationships, like the home and the church. Now, the easiest solution to this text and these problems is to say, just don't talk to anybody else about their sin. Let Live and let live. Let them do their thing. You do their thing. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that, especially in the home and the church. If you're married or if you have kids, you have a covenantal responsibility to talk to them 
about sin issues in their life. Sin will destroy them. So you have to warn them away from it to their Savior. Likewise, in the body of Christ, we, we are here together to encourage and help and challenge each other in our own pursuit of holiness. And sometimes that means talking to each other about unrepentant sin. It is to our brothers and sisters, to our children, to our parents, to one another. It is to our detriment, to theirs and ours, it is to our and their detriment to say nothing. That's not what the scribes and Pharisees are trying to do there, though. They're not trying to help this woman be restored to God and to a a fruitful marriage. No. She's bait to trap Jesus. So anytime we address other people's sins, particularly in the home and the church, here's what we need to pay attention to. We not only have clear directions on how to do this, like Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us how to talk to people about their sin. But the law that cuts should always be used in conjunction with the gospel that heals. We expose in order to invite people to repentance and restoration. We want people to know God, to have a relationship with him, to be growing in relationship to him. When we see broken relationships, broken homes, we want to see restoration and peace and love and harmony. So we don't wield the law to kill people and show them how screwed up they are. We're all screwed up, and we have to approach it from that perspective. We do this with the gospel in our hands so that we're inviting repentance and reconciliation. When it comes to the law of God, a lot of Christians just don't know what to do with it. Some people think it's just out-of-date rules, not worthy of our contemplation. Others wield it like a roadside bomb, ready at any turn to expose the sins of others to the world. But the law is a razor-sharp blade. We need to be careful how we use it. It has a purpose in our relationship with God as well in relationships with other covenant members. So let me encourage you to rethink how you take advantage of the law on a daily basis. Let the law of God invite you to daily confession and repentance. And in your conversations with Christian brothers and sisters and with members of your family, be cautious not to wield the law without the gospel. The constructive use of the law occurs when, after its exposing work, it drives us to the gospel of Christ, where we find God's invitation to repent. The law is a razor-sharp blade, so be careful how you use it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, probably, possibly from the life of Jesus, but we also thank you, Lord, that the themes herein we see throughout your scriptures, and so we know that these truths are from you. Father, we also know them to be true because we see the damage we've caused. We see the damage of an improper use of the law in our own lives, in our own homes, in our own friendships, and in our world, where we confess we have failed to use this tool as we ought. And we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to use this tool in conjunction with the gospel Not to cut people to pieces, not to cut ourselves to pieces, but to bring the healing, surgical work of the gospel. Oh God, set us free from our sins. Set our homes free from our sins. Set our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our state, our country, our world free from sins. And Holy Spirit, help us to be the people who lovingly walk with our neighbors and our loved ones, that they might experience the reconciliation of the gospel available through repentance.
This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.